0: Welcome to Vanguard, a podcast of radical traditionalism. Here is your host, Richard Spencer.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Vanguard. And welcome back, Jonathan Bowden. How are you? Yes, and I am fine. Very well. Well. Today we're going to talk about an issue that was very much in the news over the past decade and indeed I think one could say that it defined the mainstream media mass communications, the news, for at least five to seven years and yet now we're at a point in which this event is slipping into the realm of history. And I'm referring to the Iraq War, and that is the 2003 invasion um, by the Bush administration and some some allies. And we're going to talk about w- the meaning, the relevancy of the Iraq War for today, as well as some origins of it. And we'll also speculate about the future of American foreign policy. Uh, will, they, <laughs> will any lessons be learned? So on and so forth. Uh, so, Jonathan, first off... I think it's always best to start uh, at a point that, that that is most relevant for the here and now, in the sense of what is the Iraq War like today? And I think the Iraq War today is a quite ironic episode because, much as I as I mentioned, uh, the the debate over the Iraq and and the uh, debate over the surge and the, this news reports of um, the the insurgency and. And, and violence of all kinds, that defined the news cycle in the United States and Europe for at least five years uh, in the mid-2000s. Um, and it also defined the conservative movement. That was their issue. And, and it was a kind of shibboleth for the conservative movement. You know, you were on board with the invasion and the freedom agenda, or you were kicked out. Um, and yet, we reached 2011, 2012, and uh, by the end of 2011, Barack Obama has more or less ended the Iraq War. All of the troops are out. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the, the war is not completely ended. However, it's a, there, there is a major drawdown. Now, of course, there's some kind of presence there and so on and so forth. It's one of those wars that might never actually end, uh, much like the Cold War, World War II, where you had these footprints that were remaining from these past uh conflicts, you know, still military bases in Germany and so on and so forth. However, more or less it is over, and yet there was no real debate. There was a, there was a kind of minor debate about whether, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, Jonathan, but whether we should have a ticker tape parade in New York City or something to celebrate this uh, supposed victory. Uh, that that was a kind of minor debate, and I think even uh, e- even the military was a, a little bit embarrassed by the suggestion that they have a big mass parade to celebrate the Iraq War. Um, so, what do you make of this? this This, this kind of irony um, that I'm speaking of, it, It's almost as if this was the most important thing in so many people's lives on the left and right and the mainstream media and the conservative movement. And yet they've now kind of forgotten about it. Um, what, what do you think about this, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, so I think Iraq, in some ways, is the first postmodern war.
0: Hmm.
2: It's the first ironic and reflexive war. And the constituent, interconnected set of constituencies out there, who now wish in some ways to forget it occurred, right. because the war was a grandiloquent failure mm-hmm. uh, in its own terms. Certainly, in the grandstanding terms that it was put forward to the American and to other peoples, uh, the war the, it changed the regime in Iraq and the political setup inside that Arab nation state is now totally different. However, it brought to forces, to forces that were latent there mm-hmm. anyway, even under Saddam. So there has been a big change, but it's only for Iraq. The, nothing else has changed anywhere, and all that's happened is the dictatorship was taken down, a sort of um, Arab fascist sort of government was taken down, really, mm-hmm. and the forces that were held down, the Shia forces in the south of the country, have now become a you know, democratic mandated majority, but they don't rule in a democratic way, in a way that the uh, Americans thought they would. They were in a purely sectarian way mm-hmm. playing off the other two groups against them and dominating everything from their own point of view and doing to the other groups in some respects what Saddam did to them, which is not the reasons why the war was fought. Mm-hmm. And um, considering the amount of blood and material that was lost, the uh, three trillion, the cost of the whole war from beginning to end, Who knows? Uh, U.S. dollars. And the death total of around 160,000, that's the most lower case revisionist death totals so There are higher ones in the anti-war movement and among uh, certain historians of up to three-quarters of a million, uh, about 27 million in Iraq as a whole. Hmm. So uh, that's the sort of um, package that you're presented with. And the war has not been a success
1: no let's before we talk about how we got into the mess and the the origins of the Iraq war um, let's let's put a little more pressure on this uh, on this aspect of democracy in itself and you know I, I you know oftentimes Americans the American public are are deemed naive they're they're made fun of and and you know to be frank and I'm speaking of American in some ways I, I think a lot of these criticisms are valid I mean I remember listening to um, talk radio in the mid two thousands. These are just normal people. I, I don't. I don't think this was you know ma- uh, manipulated propaganda. Normal people calling up and being like, yeah, we're gonna give them a democracy, and they're gonna start shopping in malls and not worrying about radical Islam and and this kind of thing. You, you know, is it uh, d- democracy itself was just this kind of vision of becoming a you know, American postmodern nihilist or something where you, you, you spend your life buying shoes and, you know, uh, working in a post-industrial cubicle or something like this. Uh, but of course, you know, democracy, uh, there's the, the the crossy with the, the, the not just the demos. It's not just a kind of way of life. It's a form of power. Uh, and the great irony, particularly for these the conservative movement and the neocons who are now obsessed with Iran, is that the the Shia Muslims who you know Iran is a Shia Muslim country have been uh, empowered perhaps even beyond their wildest dreams uh, before two thousand three, uh, in the sense that you had a uh, Saddam, Saddam was a Sunni dictator, a kind of Arab fascist is, is not a bad way of describing him. And uh, you, you, he was ruling in some ways on behalf of a uh, Sunni minority, he was keeping the Shia in check, he was keeping the country together. Uh, now you have an empowered Shia majority, uh, you have Iran, which is has more influence in its neighboring country, uh, you know, because democracy was put forth. Um, so do you think that that is kind of the, this, you know, the, the two sides of democracy that this kind of hokey? Notion of democracy that everyone's happy and free and you know they're all shopaholics. That, that's the kind of vulgar hokum, hokum that, that that seems to be what was put forward by George Bush and was actually believed by a lot of Americans. And then there's actually the kind of the democracy that's, that's much more equivocal and is actually about power and, and has unintended consequences and so on and so forth. Do do you think that people have learned anything by this? Do do, do you think that um, the, the foreign policy establishment gets it. Do you think that the, uh, the the public general public are maybe a little more cynical or realistic this time around?
2: Probably a little bit, although it will be marginal once the propaganda' cranked out yet again. Mm-hmm. I think nothing that happened is is particularly mysterious to experts on that area of the world in the state department, but they are a tiny fraction of the educated American polity. Mm-hmm. They could have predicted what would happen. Uh, There are no bourgeois institutions, there are no middle-ranked civic institutions in a country like Iraq. So people will vote nakedly along sectional lines, Mm -hmm. and they will vote along interest group lines, they will vote along uh, communitarian lines, and you will basically just shift power from one group to another. And the groups, although they reach concordats with each other, have no concept of sharing power in an equitable way, because Mm -hmm. it's about group domination. And uh, it's—certain uh, policies in the West have always resembled this. Northern Ireland for a long time uh, was not run along lines of left-right, uh, non-communitarian democracy, individualized, bourgeois democracy. But whether you were a Unionist, whether you were a Protestant, whether you were a Nationalist, whether you were a Catholic, for example, was all important. And in those kinds of societies, these divisions were the Kurds in the North as well. Is all that matters. And mm-hmm. uh, so what the United States of America succeeded in doing is they took down a particularly uh, virulent form of Sunni elitism and have replaced it by mass plebiscitary, sheer democracy uh, linked to Iran. And that is the dispensation which now ruled. Now, if Americans were told that they'd go through this great expense of more men and materiel, uh, never mind financing, to achieve such a limited end. It would have completely blunted all of the idealistic uh, sort of posturing that led up to the war and its aftermath. I do think, though, that people are a little more chagrined afterwards. And um, Mm -hmm. the sort of Democratic Party side of the agenda, which always tends to be a bit more cynical, a bit more passive, a bit more disinterested in terms of foreign affairs, Uh, a bit more realistic about the realities of power and how it can be exercised in other societies with very different dynamics. That has largely won through, but um, I don't know what shape the anti-war movement is like in the United States or whether in any respects it has collapsed.
1: Well, it's a very good question because I I mentioned how the Iraq war defined the conservative movement and was a kind of shibboleth within that movement, Um, but it also defined the the left and there was a very strong anti-war left. It might not have reached the peaks of uh, the the anti-Vietnam movement, um, which, you know, became a social movement and spilled over into all these areas. In some ways, that revolution had already taken place. Uh, but it was a very powerful thing. And and in some ways, I, I, I think, you know, so much of the anti-war movement was probably absorbed into uh, Obama. And, uh, you know, now the, you know, the notion, I mean, o- Obama, again, Obama is a very equivocal figure. He has, he hasn't more or less ended the war in Iraq. Uh, but then he's kind of taken on, uh, you know, a po- foreign policy, which is almost George W. Bush light, you know, it, it's like we won't spend $3 trillion on some lunatic crusade in Iraq, we're going to spend half a trillion on a smaller lunatic crusade in Libya, which, which again, has the same unintended consequences uh, and so on and so forth, although it's on just a smaller scale. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, in some ways, it's just kind of the, you know, the old boss, uh, you know, same, or the new boss, same as the old boss, uh, although maybe uh, not as crazy, but it's hard to say there's a compliment. So in, in some ways, the whole anti-war movement has just been absorbed into the System which it once opposed, um, and uh, you know to go back, uh, you know to what I mentioned before. I, I I think a lot of this idea that people want to almost forget about the Iraq War is uh, because you know much like nine eleven put the whole world on a new footing. Uh, you know whether that was justified or not, you can argue, but it did, and uh, and I think the two thousand and eight the financial crisis put the world on a different footing. I, I think social mood is fundamentally different. I think, think people have different expectations. They have different perceptions of the West and power now. And um, so, do you have any thoughts about that? Of, of kind of the this new, you know, we, I, I think we really are. We're, we're in a different social mood zone. Uh, you know, I uh, pardon me for the clumsiness of that term, but you know, than we were in the mid-2000s. We're in in a kind of different world.
2: Yes, I think the uh, pretensions of the Bush presidency have been exploded. Mm -hmm. I think the reason the Republicans lost to Obama is largely placed, can be placed at the door of George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was, at the end of his regime, at the end of his second term, uh, there was an enormous amount of sort of despair and ennui, particularly in conservative circles, about George W. Bush and it's why McCain, who was almost as ardent in foreign policy terms, particularly about issues like Iran, oh, yeah. couldn't, be, couldn't pick up the baton there. Um, it was the fact that George had ruined it for them uh, with, the, with what appeared to be lies from the European perspective, to get people into the war in the first instance, mm-hmm. uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction. There was high, there was a high probability that there were none. Many other countries, small countries like the Netherlands and Northern European societies, who tend to be pacifist in orientation anyway, and therefore whose judgments are not really listened to uh, when the big brokers of power sit down globally with each other. But they had suspected for a long time that there were none of these weapons. Mm. Uh, most people thought there were such weapons or, or early systems to develop them because Saddam's government was the sort of regime that would want them. Right. What appears to have happened is he was developing low-level chemical and biological weapons, which is a poor man's bomb, and had an extremely rudimentary nuclear program. And yet he abolished it because he feared the Americans would use any programs for mass death as an excuse to invade. Uh, one of the ironies about all of these things, of course, is Saddam was a staunch ally of the United States. Yes, and we've all seen the photos of Saddam in tuxedo and little dicky bow tie, stood next to Rumsfeld, laughing it up in Baghdad during the height of the Iran Iraq War. Right.
1: Um, Gaddafi and... was was an ally uh, by the. Uh... Uh, by the after the Iraq War but in the mid to late two thousands, you know he had ended his nuclear program. He was making nice with Washington, and I, I think in some ways what Washington keeps uh, teaching the world is uh, don't play nice with the United States. It doesn't pay. Uh, the U.S. will forget what you've done, and they'll they might end up attacking you. In some ways, it, you know, you need to be a, a realistic policymaker. You, you need to. Uh, speak a language, so to speak, or you, you need to have a give and take. there need, there needs to be a rational discourse that you know we have certain ends we want to achieve. If you help us, we'll give you this, so on and so forth. with the United States and and I don't know if it has to do with uh, you know I, I don't you know sociopaths running the country or democracy itself, which is so uh, fluid and and, and and influenced by emotion and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I don't think there's any rational reason for any uh, foreign power to trust Washington. Um, you know, they're, they're no, just... but I
2: don't think they do anyway. Well, um, okay. I think I think somebody as Lucas really, Saddam didn't either.
1: Yeah, his
2: basic uh, mistake was Kuwait hmm. when the Americans put out conflicting signals. Right. But Saddam ought to have known that the Americans would not tolerate him taking Kuwait. The whole purpose of these Arab gerontocracies and feudal states in the Gulf is to break up the possibility that dangerous Arab tendencies could emerge
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that might adopt an anti-Western and an anti-Israeli specificity. And um, there is a degree to which countries in the Middle East are kept supine under uh, Arab, under Arab client regimes mm-hmm. that are loyal to their Western paymasters. And there's two premises upon which all of that is based, the flow of oil and that it's kept so, with a, with a minor quarrel to the effect that uh, radical pan-nationalism in an Arab sense and Islamism should be avoided, and the second one is uh, that the regime should not be too dangerous for Israel's future existence, even though it's understood that the Arab masses loathe Israel and would like to destroy it, uh, and that is a reality of the Arab world and of the Muslim world in general and of Arab and Muslim politics, but as long as those feelings can't actualize themselves, in threatening parallel state agencies or state agencies, this is fine. The trouble with Iran at the moment is Iran appears to be a second, a second world state of threatening aspect mm-hmm. that might pose, in the most lurid of circumstances, an existential threat to Israel's existence. And all of the pressure which is being put upon Iran is purely because it's seen in that light and the Israelis are calling in every favor they possibly can, particularly from the United States. Netanyahu is turning up later this week again Mm -hmm. for more consultations because Israel is obsessed with the idea that Iran is a threat to them and the United States is obsessed with giving Israel what it wants in relation to Middle Eastern power diplomacy. The correct position for the United States as a power, of course, is to be more even-handed yes. and to have Arab allies. But such is the fervor of pro-Israeli sentiment in the United States, not least orchestrated by tens of millions of ardent Christian Zionists, who are actually extraordinarily important, particularly to the Republican Party, that mm-hmm. uh, the interest of the United States as a state is itself skewed because they have interests on the Arab side that perpetually get overlooked. Despite key Arab allies like Egypt and Saudi Arabia,
1: yes, without question. I mean, it's a it's a very complicated issue. You obviously have a, a great deal of Jewish money supporting, uh, and and I, I not just Jewish money, but Jewish Zionist money supporting democratic uh, candidates. And then you have the uh, Christian Zionist base that uh, doesn't seem to be financial; seems to be uh, is you know emotional or spiritual. That those are very powerful forces. Let's talk a little bit about the origins of the war. You know, I I've, I've mentioned before just how 9/11 uh put the world, Washington on a new footing. New, new things were uh, thinkable after that campaign. And um, certainly there were the neocons had drawn up plans uh for an Iraq invasion. They they actually issued a paper that was signed by all sorts of neocons and kind of beltway, you know, types, Dick Cheney type people of of, uh, you know, we need to attack Saddam, and um, I, I think they even mentioned some, some things that are, you know, uh, uh, fodder for the uh, 9-11 truth movement of, you know, barring a, a Pearl Harbor-like attack, this will be a difficult to achieve, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, what do you think are the, the major factors? I mean, I, I, in, in, the, in terms of in the origins of the war, I, I think obviously 9-11 just kind of put everything on a new footing. Uh, the oil question is a very difficult one. Um, you know, obviously, oil has become in, immensely more expensive since the campaign, um, and you know, and, and corporations like Exxon and so on and so forth have become uh, wildly profitable. They're they're either Exxon is either the, the first or the second largest uh, company in the United States in terms of market capitalization, so on and so forth. So that you know that that, that 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 must have paid a factor. Although it's a very it's a very difficult one. It's not like the U.S. just wanted to grab the oil. They haven't done that. Um, and then you also have the issue of Israel and, you know, the Israel's fervent backers in the United States, the neocons. So uh, how would you try to piece this together? It's, it's a very, it's a difficult puzzle. I, and I, I don't think, um, with something like this, I, I, don't, I don't think it pays to be conspiratorial. Like there was something, you know, I've heard some people, George Bush wanted to invade Saddam because they attempted to assassinate his father or something. You know, I, I think that that's just too cheap and easy. I, I think this is a very complicated issue. So how, how, Jonathan, would you put some of these pieces together? You know, 9-11, oil, Israel, and so forth.
2: Yes, I think after 9-11, is America had uh, a wake-up call and a call to arms against complacency and had a neo-imperial spasm. Mm-hmm. And for a few period of about five years after the 9-11 attacks, became a much more right-wing imperialist nation-state, uh, looking after itself much more much rougher around the world, uh, resiled from many liberal codices that restricted the operations of the Central Intelligence Agency, restricted its ability to intervene in other countries, restricted its ability to engage in torture and black say, activities,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, restricted its activities in relation to kidnapping and um, Uh, taking people across borders without their consent and without the consent of the governments that prevailed in those areas. So there was a tightening up and there was a ratcheting up of the sort of counter-revolutionary warfare, espionage-related and actual warfare that the Americans were there to fight. And in the course of this, uh, things became much more radicalized and uh, ideas and sentiments along the lines of we can't have errant third-world dictators who used to be clients of ours but then who militarily act against our interests, witness Kuwait mm-hmm. running around and developing weapons of mass destruction which could, in a certain set of circumstances, find their hands into parallel state actors like the al qaeda network and I think this was the motivation for the war, uh, which a moment's reconsideration reveals you to be reveals itself to be something that's like a tenth rate policy paper that will be shot down <laughs> by a much better policy one at some brainstorming session in the State Department, because firstly, Saddam is a, a Sunni dictator who is regarded as a secularist and almost a communist by Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. There is no interconnection between those movements at all. Mm-hmm. Indeed, Basism was to be, considered by Islamists to be an enemy ideology. Mm-hmm. They only have time for them when they fight against Western and Israeli interests. There were no al-Qaeda operatives whatsoever in Iraq. Uh, Meetings between some of his security people, the Muhrabat and al-Qaeda, were the meetings which go on all the time. There were many meetings between the CIA and the network which became Mm al-Qaeda because they financed them to fight against the Russians in Afghanistan, which is where they first got close to each other, and where Osama cut his teeth prior to launching his crusade against the United States. So foreign policy is a dangerous and a complicated area. But I personally think that the the factors involving uh, the attempted assassination of Bush senior, which did occur by all accounts, the factors involving the oil wealth of the country and its privatisation after its nationalisation against Western commercial and corporate interests by the Barthes in the past, these are all minor. They're all part of the mix. But you don't go to war for reasons like this. You also have a Churchillian psychology in relation to President Bush and the belief that the West must act, must do things in a decisive military way. Mm-hmm. If a different president, if Gore had been president, I doubt the Iraq War would have occurred.
1: Hmm. I'm not sure I agree with you actually on that that last assertion. I, I you know, Gore was uh, talking a big talk when Clinton actually did a kind of mini Iraq War in the late '90s. Uh, where they were attacking Saddam over, over airspace. Um, I, I, I think there there was actually, there, there obviously is an anti-war left and things like that, but in, in terms of the neocons, neoliberals, there there was a broad consensus uh, about going to war uh, in the early 2000s. One that isn't there in the establishment now, and um, I, you, know, the, you, you, you don't see the Council on Foreign Relations, you see them actually talking uh, against uh, invading Iran. Um, but that was, it, was, it was definitely not the case in the, uh, the early 2000s. Um,
2: one of the reasons why there is such reluctance to go on Iran, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why America is in a non-militant posture in relation to Iran, uh, is because of Iraq. Mm-hmm. The Iraqi war has been such a disaster and has burnt itself into the consciousness not of the American population, who soon forgotten it, mm-hmm. unless they've got some direct military involvement through their own families and so on. Uh, Iraq is so no, not an issue for contemporary Americans now, that in a strange way, it's almost as if that war didn't occur. Yeah. That's the impression I've got, despite being in the United States, subsequent to the war. Um, but I think in relation to Iraq, they are so mindful of the minefield of unexpected possibilities that loom as soon as you start using force in relation to these complicated areas, particularly to achieve tendentious and simplistic results. Even in terms of planning, it's quite clear the Bush administration had no plan at all for post-Saddam Iraq. They began with a blank sheet of paper and had made it up as they went along, consulting allies such as the British, Mm -hmm. who of course used to run Iraq. And have, infinite, and have a larger degree of practical knowledge about how you manipulate the groups inside the country in order to achieve any sort of stability. So I think um, the fact that political parties will be set up, hundreds and hundreds of them that later merged into blocks, that later hardened intersectional blocks, caused certain Western policymakers to despair that they couldn't create a bourgeois democracy in a couple of years inside Iraq. Uh, so it would take centuries of democracy in these societies for them to develop middle class, left, right polarities, right.
0: Right. such
2: as those that exist in Western societies. You've got to basically overcome uh, group-based societies and populist politicians who play on that internally all of the time.
1: Yeah, uh, perhaps even never. I mean, I, I think there's... Even never, yes. Like India.
2: India right. has quite an advanced policy for a, a, an ex-third world society. But all of India's politics is rooted in caste, rooted in communitarianism, rooted in religiosity, if you're a mainstream Hindu you vote for the Congress party, if you're a militant Hindu you vote BJP, Um, if you're a communist you've got a tiny little slot over to one side, and the cluster of minorities, enormous minorities Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist and otherwise, Vote for the Congress Party because Congress is less militant and will protect you.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's something to the idea that it is uh, Northern Europeans, but Europeans as a whole, who have this abstract corporate notion of the state. Um, it, it's just something very different, and it might not really work in the Arab mind. And I, you know, it, it gets back to what we were talking about before of this, this hokey notion of democracy that George Bush put forth and and, and Americans gobbled up. Um, and and the difference between the re, you know real existing democracy in the Arab world just two very different things and it's something the American public just can't understand, uh, you know you know again the the problem of the problems of democracy really affecting foreign policy. Um, let me uh, you know there are two interesting issues that I want to uh, talk about and and ask you to speculate on and. One of those is the neoconservatives, and you know this is a very in the intellectual history of the American right. It's a very interesting topic. You you essentially have um, a generation of Jews, uh, mostly in New York City, and it is a Jewish movement, much like critical theory or so on and so forth, um, who were essentially the Trotskyists, who you know would argue against the Stalinist and the other. Alcove of the cafeteria of New York City College as the story goes, and I think that story is literally true. Um, They they seemed they were very they were essentially the anti-communist left, uh, which which definitely existed. Trotsky's left that that kind of morphed into a uh, in in the Cold War into a neoliberal liberal democratic kind of thing, and then by the Reagan administration and onward, it 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 shifted over to the Republican side and so interesting story. Um, and, you know, they, they seem to have maintained uh, a little bit of that Trotskyist, uh, maybe even demonic spirit. You know, you, you have people, and, I, you know, we shouldn't we should we shouldn't overestimate that spirit within the neocons, but you, you really did have people like Michael Ledeen. I, I can't remember the exact uh, phrase he used, but it was something like, we seek chaos in the Middle East, you know, we see creative destruction. I think that's what the term he used, much like America as a uh, ever progressive creative destructing force, you know, we must go and smash the Middle East and bring them to a higher level. I mean, you have this a very weird uh, Americanized form of Trotskyist revolutionary fervor. And I, and I think that that really played a part in the neocons. Uh, imagination and obviously at another level they're Israeli nationalists they are they're firm Zionists so um, you know anyway it's a very complicated issue but do you think Jonathan that um in some ways the neocons have blown their wad you know they they had their moment where you you had the opportunity with 9 eleven that everyone again they're on a new footing they're they were ready for war you had a president who uh could be cajoled into this could could easily be influenced not not particularly intelligent uh, you had the christian zionist community which was kind of uh you know w- w- reached its peak you know in the mid-2000s and so on and so forth do you, do you think that it's in some ways over for them or or do you think that they too will uh, stage a, a comeback of sorts um I, I i actually i my view i i think the neocon the neoconservative era might be really coming to a close. I, I, I think it, it reached its peak with Bush, and I don't think they're going to get a chance to do anything like they've done before. Uh, but that's just my view. I might be wrong in that. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the neocons and the future of the neocons, Jonathan?
2: Well, they're tied inbilically to al-Qaeda and to 9-11, mm-hmm. um, because that's what gave them their moment. Mm-hmm. So if America suffered climactic uh, terrorist attacks of a similar sort, If somebody exploded a nuclear weapon in an American city 15 years from now, um, then that type of politicking can come back Mm -hmm. because it's entirely dependent upon events. They will have their own caucuses. They will have their own meetings. They will try and press the flesh. They will try and get money into the hands of politicians who are are corruptible and can be induced in one direction as against another, Mm -hmm. but they are now reduced to the ordinary level of middle-ranking politicking. They no longer have the ear of anyone in power, and mm-hmm. their theses seem to have failed. Because their theses in Iraq were that a Western-style liberal democracy could be created in Iraq, which would make Israel safer, um, but, which seemed to be their premise looked at from abroad. All of that seems to be utter nonsense. Uh, the Maliki government in Iraq is as anti-Israeli as Saddam ever was.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, when Maliki was asked at the White House, do you, who do you support in the in the upsurge of the Hezbollah war or micro-war a couple of years ago between Hezbollah and Israel? He said, Hezbollah
0: hmm.
2: are brothers of the Shia and there were extraordinarily pained faces around him in the White House press room <laughs> um, because he's responding to a totally different constituency and he's not going to say anything um, in relation to, you know, sort of American allies who put him in power, mm-hmm. which could in any sense deflect from the constituency he represents inside Iraq and outside, because there's this phalanx of sheer power now that exists from Iran through the deserts of southern Iraq into Jordan and out into the Lebanon, Mm -hmm. which faces off directly against Israel's northern border, and where Iran has a proxy army arranged with the Syrians in cohort called the Hezbollah militia. The great unwritten fear in all of this, of course, is that weapons of mass destruction will be given to Hezbollah. who would use them? Uh, probably they were. They're ten times more likely to use them than than an Iranian state. States are incredibly nervous because of the fear of retribution, sure. which would occur if they use such weapons. But the likelihood that a state would ever give an organisation as radical as Hezbollah weapons of mass destruction is extremely unlikely because it will be known almost instantly that they had done this. It's now pretty much known that the Pakistanis, of course, sold the technology of the bomb illicitly to North Korea, which helped them to develop their tiny little device. Hmm. And Israel and um, uh, Syria, to a degree, that, of course, was destroyed by an Israeli attack, but they only had one place to aim for, and the Syrians were anxious to cover it up, and Libya. Libya had quite an advanced nuclear program, far more advanced than the West thought they did, because Libya was always regarded as a very eccentric Mm -hmm. uh, regime, led by a man who was regarded by the Western popular press as insane. And it surprised the West how advanced their nuclear program was, but they bought it off the shelf from Pakistan. Mm. So there is a danger of internal proliferation when these countries begin to get these weapons. But nothing can stop these countries getting these weapons. So this is old technology. This technology is between 70 and 80 years old. These countries are 70 to 80 years behind the West in terms of the economic and technological cusp. And therefore, it's inevitable they're going to get them. Between now and 2050, a whole plethora of second and third world societies will achieve atomic weapons.
1: Yes, I agree. Uh, and, and I also agree the about the reluctance of the states to use them because they they have a return address and retribution would be swift. I, I think you at, at some level, all of these states are going to be ration. They're going to rationally calculate that um, they, they would only use such weapon in a uh, extreme exigent. Um, let, let's talk about You know, I have two more issues um, that are both a little bit speculative. But let's talk about this Christian Zionist uh, issue. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting when you when you look at it because it is a purely American phenomenon. I, it's very hard to find Christian Zionist anywhere in Europe. Perhaps you could find some in England. Um, but what do you think? What do you think the origins of this movement are, and and, and the larger meaning of it? And and do you think it, it's going to have a a future of some sorts? And I'll just mention that. There, there has been, there, there are obviously a, a lot of dealings between many of these, you know, fanatical Christian Zionist preachers like Heiji or Pat Robertson and so on and so forth, where they're, they're literally dealing with Israel. They're being sent on trips to Israel. I think Israel famously bought Jerry Falwell a plane, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. So obviously there, there's some, uh, you know, uh, pressing of the flesh that, that gets this relationship started but you know it's it's i don't think one should think that they don't sincerely believe in this um i don't know what to call it uh, ideology or cult or something like this where they, they believe that there's going to be some kind of armageddon in the foreseeable future and that the jews must inhabit the holy land and the, there'll be a rapture and I, I guess in some ways it's a uh, it's a very strange vision, which is almost anti-Semitic in, in its uh, <laughs> the views, um, but, but what do you think about the Christian Zionists? Are they, are they just kind of useful idiots of Israel, or, or uh, is this something that might actually have a future? Or uh, what, what are your thoughts on this issue, Jonathan?
2: Yes, I think they are useful idiots, although I think they are um, totally sincere. Yeah. It's always wrong to think that people don't believe what is attested to them in terms of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they come out of the semi-crazed world of millennial Protestantism mm-hmm. inside the United States. The Roman Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor wrote an extraordinary book about a time in the deep south of the United States amidst Protestant and revivalist cults called Wise Blood. Wise Blood! <laughs> and it's about um, these good old boys who wrestle with serpents in church, literally have fights with pythons and on in church, and fire into the ceiling of the church during ecstatic raptures uh, when they're whipped up to frenzy by various uh, apocalyptic preachers, and so on. This is uh, uh, the politicization of good old-time religion, mm-hmm. and it's always had a mass following in the United States, because the United States is a Puritan country founded by English revolutionary Protestants, and also Scottish brethren of the same, who went over there because they couldn't create a theocratic state in England mm-hmm. based upon these sorts of maxims. So they believe all this, and the the, the active side of Protestantism does have millenarian and apocalyptician teachers, whereby they want a, uh, they want the end of the world or end times, and. Catholicism and Orthodox Protestantism are much more sedate. Although Christianity is a millenarian religion, has always believed that the world will come to an end at a particular time. But that's so pushed far down the agenda in relation to mainstream Christianity that it's almost not there. But with these fanatics, uh, it's very much there and it's ever-present. Uh, what, what they want, of course, completely diver, diverges from Israeli interest because in the end these Israelis one Jews generally will all be converted to Christianity and to the Protestant version of Christianity of a particular sort. Anyway, if not, they're all damned. So it's not in their interests either. But politically, they are a very potent force and when they're whipped up, they can be used by other people. Uh, even though they have quite transparently their own agendas. It's like when there was a, a Hollywood blocking of the distribution of the uh, Christian film, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, Mm -hmm. Gibson went to Falwell and all the other leaders of the Protestant millenarian tendency in the United States. And despite the fact that it's a very Catholic theological film, Mm -hmm. an ultra-Catholic theological film, they were so uh, enraptured by it, they really had a rapture then and there, that (laughs) they, they, they agreed to disseminate that film right across the Bible Belt and beyond. And when they moved, they had enormous social power and a lot of money and they would block by t- um, sort of cinemas in Texas and elsewhere where every part of the multiplex would show The Passion of the Christ 12 yeah. screenings a day, and they would bus in their people from local churches so that the cinemas were always full, so it was everyone was a winner. And Gibson did something incredibly clever there by tapping the energy of these people who, it would have been otherwise thought, would have nothing to do with a sort of Hollywood sophisticate... Mm-hmm. And sort of actor like Gibson. Mm-hmm. But when these people move, they move and they're very well oiled. And they've got a lot of uh, political abilities, obviously, to to mobilize their own people. And I suppose this um, outsider in the Republican race at the moment, who is giving Romney a run for his money. Rick Santorum. Yes, is pure. Even though he's a Catholic, isn't he? Well,
1: you know, it's it's funny. He's I, getting
2: the support of these people. I mean, it's quite obvious from the outside. Oh,
1: well, without question, it it is a funny thing. Uh, just to mention, um, you have Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. You have others. It, it, it's a funny way. The the you know snake wrestling. Uh, Baptist uh, Christian Zionists—they—they—they're almost—they look to Catholic leaders. I've, I've kind of noticed this trend. There's another um, Catholic from Kansas named Sam Brownback, who's who's uh, thoroughly awful in every possible issue. He wants, you know, mass immigration, and we need to also send troops to Darfur. Uh, so he, he's—I he, don't think there's—you know—I I almost find myself agreeing with the kind of wishy-washy mainstream Episcopalians or something, which is, I guess, my religious background. Um, you know, I, they, they seem—you know—they're—they're they're kind of—they're maybe a little bit bit silly on, you know, gay marriage or something, uh, but at least they're not. Um, uh, bringing about the end of the world uh, with some of their <laughs> foreign policy desires. Uh, but uh, so it's a very strange thing. But but I've always found, there, I don't know, it's hard for me to put into words. I've always found it a little bit odd that you have these uh, Baptists, yet you have these Catholics leading them. Uh, it's almost like they they almost recognize kind of their own silliness and they, they, they look to a, a more establishment religion. Uh, as their, um, you know, for, for their leaders. Um, but, I also
2: think a lot of these <clears throat> intra-Christian rivalries of the past have gone. Oh, yeah. One of the things that the Gibson in, in it's Christians against the rest now, and all of these interdenominational disputes amongst Protestants themselves that used to be so warm and fervid, and kept many the hateful fires burning in relation to between people who are fundamentally similar,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, partly given mass migration into the states by people who are not Christian at all, mm-hmm. and partly by the change in conception of the world around them. Uh, and the re-emergence of Islam as, after a sleep of the best part of a millennium, a major force in the, in the non-Western modern world, which, with migration and immigration en masse, mm-hmm. is beginning to become a major player even inside the Western world now, a major minor player. It, Christians have seen what unites them rather than what divides them, and it's, uh, it's all coming together of the clans, and it's all Christians against all the others now. So I think that's why they... They're no longer bothered the fact that sort of leading cultural icons like Gibson and leading people like the politicians you've mentioned mm-hmm. are actually Roman Catholics whom they wouldn't have followed in the
1: past. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's true. And, and in some ways from from our um, radical and, and racialist perspective, I, I think that's a good thing. I, I don't think any kind of war of religions um, is going to be uh, uh, do any good uh, for uh, European civilization. Um, I, I think getting over that is, is probably a positive step. Um, l- let me talk a little bit about, um, to, to bring up one last issue before we end this uh, very interesting conversation, uh, a little bit about the notion of the nation and the state. And, you know, I remember, I guess it was back in 2008 or 2009, um, Scott McConnell, who uh, was actually my boss, when in two thousand seven, when I worked at the American Conservative Magazine, and he was actually kind of a former—he was a he's Gentile, but he was a kind of former neocon or or neocon um, ally—and uh, then with a lot of the the the, the actions in Kosovo and so on and so forth, I think he kind of recognized that this was leading to you know, perpetual war for perpetual peace, so on and so forth, and he kind of became a Buchananite, although he always had a, being you know, a bit of a kind of liberal in a way, I, I don't think he would, um, I, I don't think he would get mad at me for saying that. Uh, you know, kind of an oddball in some ways in the Buchananite movement, which has a lot more, uh, you know, kind of staunch, uh, Midwestern, Catholic, patriotic kind of people. Uh, anyway, he wrote an article, which I reacted strongly against back in 2008, where he was saying that, more or less, um, we with mass immigration and with this new Latino population, uh, maybe even African population, Asian population, uh, this brings certain problems. However, it will spell the end of a neoconform policy because the neoconform policy, at the end of the day, its base is the Protestant white, Uh, population in Middle America and the South. And in some ways, those are the only people who support it. They're the only people who have a positive view of Israel, for instance. Uh, Israel, within the Western world, certainly within uh, elite institutions, universities within America, all over the world, it it is a, if not a pariah, certainly people are quite skeptical of it and its actions, but not so, but the only place in the world probably Israel itself and the Deep South. What he was saying is that when you have this new multicultural population, that foreign policy will change, and that there's a kind of there's a great irony in the sense of a lot of uh, paleoconservatives, so-called, like Pat Buchanan, uh, would you know they oppose immigration, but they also oppose the Iraq War and the neocon agenda. Uh, but there's a kind of irony where you, with mass immigration, you will actually get a more isolationist, pacifist foreign policy, and. Obviously, I, I think a lot of people, when someone heard this argument, they kind of suspected that this is almost a pro-immigration argument and, you know, I and others reacted strongly against that. And I think I also mentioned a, an important criticism, which is that foreign policy making is one of the most elite uh, activities of government. It is not, you know, only in, in rare cases like a big war, and we certainly saw this over the past 10 years. but. In rare cases like a big war, does it become a populist policy in the sense of you're going to rally the public on behalf of foreign policy. Normally, it is basically something that is affected by elite institutions like the Council on Foreign Relations, diplomats, State Department, so on and so forth. It's a very elite institution that in some ways is uh, buffered from uh, emotional democracy and so on and so forth. Uh, So, you know, I said, you know, we could have a worst of all possible worlds where, you know, we have a multicultural population, but then we still have this horrible neocon uh, foreign policy because you have the same people that are actually running the show. But, you know, in some ways, I think McConnell made a good point because at the end of the day, uh, it is a democracy. And even though democracies might be a sham in some way, they're run by elites, at the end of the day, the character of the people is going to affect government. It just can't, you know, eventually it will. It, It can't help itself but doing that. And uh, so, you know, I, I think there's a, a good question of the future of American foreign policy if current trends uh, continue. That is, if, if we if we continue to have the non-white population increases by about a half a percent a year, so increases about two percent every election cycle. Uh, if, if this keeps going on like this linearly for. Uh, you know, let, let's say another decade or two, what that for, what foreign policy is going to be. I mean, we, we might be in a situation that's dramatically different. We might have a, we might have a new focus in, say, South America, or a new focus of our diplomatic relations with Mexico, or or something altogether different that, that's almost unimaginable. So, Jonathan, what what are some of your thoughts on this this general idea about the nation affecting the state in the foreign policy realm? And, and maybe some of your ideas about what American foreign policy is going to be like. And, and you know, also, if we, if we project forward, a much more impoverished America, an America that can't really say with a straight face anymore that we are the wealthiest country on Earth, you know, we, everything, you know, here is prosperous. You, you won't be able to say that with a straight face because it's not true. And so what, what do you think is the future of American foreign policy?
2: Yes, I think that article that that chap wrote was right, Mm -hmm. that the time frame is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it it, it would take half a century to a century to make the nation to affect the state in that way, Mm. tripping up from the bottom. Uh, policy will still be made by the elites. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there's been such a change from the Obama regime uh, to the ba- Obama regime, from the Bush one, that you can almost see the, the the default position emerging there, because what will happen is that regimes in the future will be more like Obama than Obama is allowed to be himself. Yeah. Because uh, my reading of Obama is, Obama is Obama is not really an ally of the Israelis at all, mm. but is completely hemmed in by the reality of uh, power and money directed to Democratic Party caucuses without which he couldn't have got anywhere. Mm -hmm. He also needs people who were allied in civil rights causes going back uh, several generations now. So he knows what he can do and what he can't do. But I personally believe he he debates with himself about Israeli power dislikes having to uh, negotiate so hard, in such a hard and fast manner with Netanyahu. And although they've given the Israelis everything they want, short of absolute war and invasion of Iran, I believe that he will never invade Iran, and there will not be a U.S. attack upon Iran, because he axiomatically does not believe in doing so. And all of this pressure is partly a pressure on the United States to go further. And it's partly Israeli irritation that Obama is holding the line, and the U.S. Chiefs of Staff are being told to hold this line. And I think that as time goes on, uh, American foreign policy will become more U.N. foreign policy, Hmm. and will become less Western, and, and will become less American nationalist and will become more isolationist. But it won't be the old-style isolationism of a century ago, which was an American first, Mm -hmm. a sort of white isolationism. It will be an isolationism of the lowest common denominator, where you digitally wish to remain inside the U.S. unless you're attacked externally from abroad, which the Al-Qaeda attacks could be perceived as an attack from abroad, hence justifying the Afghanistan war the first time around but not the Iraqi war, and certainly not an Iranian war, maybe to come, maybe not. So I believe that American foreign policy will just become the declining foreign policy of an increasingly second world country, particularly as a major contraction hmm. in America's superpower status in the next 20 to 25 years. Countries in Central and Latin America and the Caribbean will become much more important. You'll have a, reversion, a reversal of the Monroe Doctrine adoption was designed to prevent European powers from imperially meddling in the Americas and was designed to put the whole of the rest of the Americas under North American ages. One of the reasons why Latinos have always fought cultural war against the United States and its influence is because they were felt cold-shouldered and belittled politically in terms of the raw power within the hemisphere. But uh, American interests will become hemispherical and will become centered on new factors of interest, such as India and China, Mm -hmm. as it becomes less and less of a forceful Western power. One could always be wrong, but it could be that Bush's presidency, the second Bush, is a last hurrah of various forces, Mm -hmm. which are now replete and partly exhausted themselves in that particular war. And it was a war which Obama described as a dumb war, didn't he? That was one of his um, phrases that haunted his administration. And, of course, he was right. It was an extraordinarily dumb war. It was against the wrong regime at the wrong time for the wrong reasons that cost an enormous amount of money and achieved the opposite of what it set out to achieve. It set out to achieve a westernized Iraq which would be uh, impermeable to Islamism, and not a threat to its neighbors, and not a threat to Israel. You now have an Iraq, which is as anti-Israeli as it ever was, which is a sectional democracy, which is the only way democracy will work in those parts of the world, and which is uh, a hotbed of Iranian influence, and Iranian, Iran has now replaced all the other regimes, including Cuba and North Korea and Syria, as the worst regime in the world, from the perspective of the American neoconservatives. But nobody other than them and their allies thinks of Iran in those terms. Uh, although people do not want to, to Iran to get a nuclear weapon, they don't want Burma or
0: mm-hmm.
2: Cuba to get nuclear weapons either. They don't want Argentina and Brazil and South Africa, all of whom have got advanced nuclear programs to develop nuclear weapons either. It's largely this, rather than any uh, existential fear that the bulk of Gentiles have on Israel's behalf, this sort of uh, teeth-wrenching, sort of Zionist default position is held by nobody except certain Zionists themselves, um, the political and moneyed club in the United States, and the Christian Zionist movement, mm-hmm. which extends across the, the, the great swath of Protestant radicalism. Nobody else in the world perceives the world in this way. When I open a copy of the London Times and it's full of this slightly watered-down, neoconservative stuff. It's only because of the nature of the ownership of News International and the nature of the press comment that it draws upon from the United States. So although that type of media is here, nobody in Britain has that sort of viewpoint. There was overwhelming hostility to the Iraq War in Britain. It cost the Blair government its moral legitimacy with its own side and didn't win them many friends and allies afterwards. And the key killer weapon with the Blair regime was the weapons of mass destruction. The entire British population is convinced that we went to war on the basis of a lie.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: nobody nobody now even mentions Iraq. And the people who said that they were in favor of it at the time were embarrassed. So in Britain, who, were the, who was the minor sidekick ally in relation to the Iraq war, there's a more radical disjoint in relation to the war and its aftermath than there is in the United States. But the same panoply is discernible, the same uh, adjustment of expectations, the same reluctance to admit mistakes, and partly a desire to forget the entire incident.
1: Yes. Well, Jonathan, it's a very complicated issue which we're going to have to take up again in the near future. But thank you for being on Vanguard, and I look forward to talking with you again next week.
2: Thanks very much. All the best.